Welcome to episode three of But Did You Die podcast by Obstum Medical Group with your host Craig, Mandy, Wendy, and me, John. We are acute care and emergency medicine clinicians. Our goal with this podcast is to provide education and entertainment by bringing you insights into our experiences and to help you better understand critical aspects of medicine. We hope that our stories provide you with both an insight into the technical and the human side of medicine. Our ultimate goal is to help you develop the technical, mental, and emotional tools to handle emergent events. Today, we are lucky enough to have one of our friends and coworkers who is here today um, by the name of Jess, who is a respiratory therapist that we work very frequently with, both in the ICU and in the emergency department. Uh, and we are so thankful to have, uh, have you here, Jess. Thanks for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, though. Um, so my name is Jessica. I'm a respiratory therapist and I've been one at the same facility for about six years. Um, last year, I actually took a little break. That way I could go into the teaching setting. Um, and that was super fun. I had a really good time teaching and I still do enjoy teaching very much. And I still do that part time. Um, but the reason why I made the transition back to the hospital setting was because COVID was at its peak, um, in our city and the school had went virtual. So it was kind of hard to do virtual school with my seven year old, um, online school for myself. Cause I'm still pursuing a, an education, a, a higher education, and then trying to help out on the front line. So um, my preferred work setting is definitely ICU, ER, but at my facility, I'm one of two therapists that are able to do everything. So I can do floor therapy, PFTs, NICU, ICU, um, ER, but ICU and ER definitely are my favorite. Um, actually, interesting story. When I was in RT school, I was doing my clinical rotation. I was doing my clinicals at this facility and um the director actually offered me a job like a week later and i was fixing to graduate too but under the stipulation that i got my credentials done in less than a month so seven day uh, a week after i graduated i sat for my tmc and then six days after that i sat for my sims and i passed them both and i've been there ever since so uh, I'm super invested in there. My family is from that from that area, so uh, I try to deliver quality care to that population because I really do care about the work that we do there. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoy teaching. I love taking on new um, RTs under my wing and just making it a learning experience for everyone. Awesome. Jess is one of those folks who, like she said, she's invested both in the hospital where we all work uh, and also in the community. And that's where she's from, that's where her family's from, that's what she's passionate about. And she mentioned coming back after uh, being out for some, uh, focus on education, teaching, and both, both her, her personal educational pursuits, but coming back to help out uh, as COVID-19 has, has peaked um, for us this past summer. And, and even right now, it looks like it's starting to peak again in, in South Central Texas. So uh, we're glad to have her back on board. But we did want to talk to her about COVID. Um, obviously, that is a hot topic right now, and we feel like it is important to address that. One of the things we wanted to talk to you about was, as emergency uh, clinicians uh, and even intensivists, uh, acute care specialists, 
uh, in the ER, a lot of what we see is sort of split. Like we, we see people who come in with COVID and they aren't really that sick and they're able to go home and we counsel them accordingly. And the flip side is the people that come in, they're really sick. They have to go to the ICU. And I imagine that's a majority of who you see right. there's the super sick people. So your perspective is, is different, but we kind of want to talk to you about your perspective and what you've seen with, with COVID and how you've uh, managed it both from a professional standpoint in the hospital, but also from a personal standpoint in terms of coping with the stresses and strains of being exposed to a disease that is still largely unknown uh, at this point in a lot of, in a lot of ways, uh, both personally and also, you know, for your family. Yeah, so when I when I made my entrance back, well, I never truly left the hospital setting. I was always PRN and would give my, you know, days a month, so many days a month. But when I made my full-time entrance back in was right at the peak. So at one point we were had a surplus of 75 plus COVID patients, which for our facility is extremely overwhelming. Um, and that's, it was... That's ICU patients. Right. So, <clears throat> so, um, so everybody understands no, yeah. that's, that's mm-hmm. 75 ICU patients. That's not 70 yeah. just general patients yeah. in general. Right. And, and so, that's, uh, of the ICU patients, 75 of them. Right. <laughs> you know, so there were more patients that um, were, in, were the in the ICU and in the hospital in general. Right. So we had to open up several <clears throat> other units in our hospital to kind of facilitate that overflow um, of patients. So a lot of areas that were designated for patients that are like, um, you know, in a telemetry unit, it was no, this is no longer tele, this is still, this is considered ICU, or this was uh, at one point PACU, but now it's an ICU, just trying to, like I said, over- facilitate the overflow. Um, so we were in such dire need for respiratory therapists that we had to reach out to, um, an agency to kind of help uh, alleviate some of the stresses because there was, you know, one RT in particular that had worked like 18 days straight and was just wrecked. Um, and it actually took a physician saying, hey, I really think this person needs rest, you know, um, mentally, because I mean, as you guys know, it, it takes a toll on you mentally and physically having to our shifts are from 5.30 in the morning to 5.30 p.m. So having to wake up at 4, 3 in the morning to go to work and then like just be balls to the wall all day long and then have to wake up and be at it again. So um, we got a lot of help, thankfully, from people all over the nation that came to um, kind of bail us out. And that was super helpful. But, you know... Like you said, it you can have one patient that's presenting like, hey, I just have, you know, mild shortness of breath. Or then you can have someone of the same age size and be on the opposite realm of it. So it's really hard as a respiratory therapist because everything that you just learned in school that, oh, okay, I can do this and put this into practice to help a patient that's presenting in this way. It kind of all went out the window because... I personally didn't learn about COVID when I was in school. It was like, okay, you know, this is how you treat a baby with croup or um, rhinovirus or, you know, in your patient population, pneumonia, the adult population, um, pneumonia, um, CHF, you know, XYZ, COPD. But 
I never was taught this is how you manage a COVID patient, which, I mean, fortunately, I feel like us um, on the healthcare profession side are, it was a learning experience for us. And now we can say, hey, we were there and we did it and we, this stuff worked out for us and this stuff didn't and just kind of grow from there. But um, yeah, I, it's hard to see like younger people come in and be super sick from it and end up on, uh, you know, a, a ventilator and then having to have the family dynamic absent from it. Just, you know, it, it's now by phone. They can't come in and see their loved one. Um, whereas a physician, I'm sure it's super, that's like a really personal thing for you to have to like, look, this is your family member and they're dying and look, we're exhausting all of our efforts. What do you want to do? Do you want to make this pay your family member a DNR so that way we don't prolong their suffering? And now you have to transition that to a virtual aspect where, hey, I know you can't see them, but they're not doing well. Um, we're exhausting all these efforts and they're not responding to anything. Um, I think at one point we even had an iPad where at least the family were able to see um, how bad their family member really looked. Um, because initially that's what, you, I mean, it, that's what you're doing at the end of the day, just prolonging suffering. And I think a lot of people that aren't in the medical field have a hard time understanding how much of a toll that takes on us as healthcare professionals. Because you literally have to see someone die and like you literally have you are present in the process of, of their dying, you know, their death. And we always say death and evolution, right? Like that's something we hear all the time. But um, I feel like the COVID, you throw COVID into the mix of that already difficult situation. And it just makes it that much more taxing on you mentally. Um, just like, uh, I mean, me personally, I, the other day I had a husband and a wife, not trying to divulge too much information, but um she was worse than the husband was and they allowed him to come down and say his last goodbyes to his wife before we pulled her off life support and he asked me uh he was spanish speaking only and he asked me um if she would be alone when she passed and i saw to it that i was with her until um she went asystole you know or pea um and that for me meant a lot to me because I was able to, you know, not so much take his place, but at least uh, she didn't die alone, you know, and uh, there's, I'm not the only one. There's people all over that are doing that right now for their patients um, to kind of sup or um, I don't want to say replace, but fill in the spot where a family member normally would be. That's been certainly one of the hardest things um, to have absence of loved ones for the the patients who are ill and that's uh been a, a challenge whether you're in the the emergency room or the icu or the hospital in general uh backing up a little bit just mentioned dnr for those of you who are not familiar that's a do not resuscitate order and to be clear when we speak to patients and their families about do not resuscitate we in no way mean that we will not uh, care for the patient and try to make him or her comfortable. 
As a matter of fact, if at any point the patient or his family wishes to revoke the do not resuscitate order, we do that immediately. Um, the do not resuscitate order is designed to keep a patient comfortable. It is designed to prevent suffering. Many of the friends and family that I have who are not in the medical professional, and I'm sure this is true for Mandy and Wendy and Craig and Jess and any of the other medical professionals out there, the friends and family that we have who are not in healthcare don't have the same understanding of the pain and discomfort that some of the procedures we do put patients through, uh, whether that is uh, a big IV in one of the major vessels called a central line, or a chest tube, or simply CPR, which is most likely going to break ribs and crush the chest and hurt. And we wish to do that if we think that there's chance of improving the patient's outcome. But in a patient who is unlikely to have a positive outcome, we often have to have a very difficult conversation with the family, basically saying, I do not think that the pain that we're going to put your loved one through will have the positive outcome that we want it to. And that's something that's incredibly challenging with COVID-19 preventing patients from being present because they're unable to see all that we have been able to do, whether it's intubate the patient or provide the medications. They, they can hear it on a phone, but they can't see it in real time. Thank goodness for things like FaceTime and iPads. That certainly helps, but even that's not the same. Uh, Jess also mentioned asystole and PEA. Asystole would be when the heart is not beating um, and thus the body is not getting perfused. The brain's not getting blood. Kidney's not getting blood. It, it's not a, a life-sustaining uh, cardiac rhythm. And, and PEA is uh, pulseless electrical activity. Again, not a perfusing rhythm in which the brain's not going to be getting blood. The kidneys won't get a blood. The lungs won't be getting blood. So neither of those cardiac rhythms are uh, compatible with life. And they're also not compatible with electricity. So we can't, like in the movies, just shock the patient and they come back. Um, and most of the time, uh, unfortunately, that is the, the rhythms that we're dealing with. And we have medications that we can try to use that sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Um, but COVID has certainly put a, a very big challenge to us because, you know, just mentioned not being taught about this in school. Well, Pretty sure none of us were taught about this in school. Yeah. This yeah. is new to everybody, whether you're a specialist or a generalist or a nurse or a respiratory therapist. And so we're all learning in real time. And that's something that is incredibly important for everyone to know is that we're doing the absolute best that we can with the tools that we've been giving. And we're learning more all the time. But when we first started this, and I don't know, you said you came back in June, July. Um, so... Yeah, let's say so, so when COVID hit the scene in, uh, I guess for us, it was like February, March. It was kind of really picking up. Uh, the, the first wave of information was intubate everybody. And when I say intubate, I mean that we 
put a patient to sleep and we put a breathing tube into his or her trachea and put them on a machine that breathes for them. And the idea was that we were able to control their breathing, but also prevent the spread of the disease. About, I don't know, a month and two months later, yeah. ish, around that time, uh, some of the uh, intensivists, uh, critical care specialists, uh, some of the superstars in the nation started to realize that we actually might be causing more harm than good by doing that. So the, the narrative changed dramatically to try not to intubate anybody. I mean, one extreme to the other within the matter of two months. I mean, it, it was just overwhelming to try to keep up with. And then, of course, all the medications that we've tried and even the hope with, um, with plasma that we're finding is really not doing a whole lot so far. So we're still, we're still struggling to fight this disease. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, Jess, is what I have seen in the ER, and just kind of tell me if this is what you're seeing in the, the ICU, especially with those patients, what I have seen with the ER in terms of the majority of patients who are requiring admission, those persons aren't healthy at baseline. Would you say that that's accurate? What's your, what's been your experience? Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. Well, I'm going to say 98% because like two of that, that percentage is like, okay, we have otherwise healthy, uh, a healthy patient that is sick and um, they aren't able to manage their symptoms. Um, but like the other solid 98% are, have some sort of comorbidity, like diabetes, hypertension, um, something else along those lines, COPD. Um, and just to like reiterate what you said, um, the information I feel is changing for us and is still continuing to change on a daily basis. So. Um, at the beginning of, of the peak in our area, it was like, okay, let's all sit down and have a discussion about what our game plan is going to be. So that way we're not completely taken off guard, um, when it does finally hit us. And then when it did, it was like, oh no, that information that we just went over, it changed. So now what are we going to do? Which, I mean, I feel is super important for us, for any facility to have a strong foundation of communication like we were talking about earlier because it's like um i can go up to you and say hey i, I know that you really ordered this but i don't think that's going to benefit benefit the patient right now how about we try this or you know going to wendy or or craig and saying hey guys like my patient is crashing and i have no idea what else there is we could do for them and just being able to like formulate a plan of care for someone um who's decompensating really fast we're definitely going to come back to that because uh -huh. I want to talk more about communication yes. uh, mm -hmm. there. But the reason that I, that I wanted to bring that up is that there is an, an incredible amount of misinformation about COVID and how dangerous it is. And I want to be very clear. We need to respect this virus. We need to respect this virus. It is scary because some patients come in and they're there for a broken ankle and just happen to get a COVID test that's positive and they have no symptoms at all. Other patients come in and they end up on the ventilator and they die. So the, the, the range of symptoms is, is a, amazingly scary. That having been said, the majority of the patients that I'm seeing, and I believe the same is true for Wendy and Craig, and I believe the same is true for Jess from what she's just saying, the patients are not healthy at baseline. And this is a little bit of a, a sidebar and also a plug to encourage people to take care of themselves. Yeah. 
whether it's managing your diabetes or your high blood pressure or working on trying to quit smoking or working on trying to lose weight, all of these things are very important. And I'm not saying that any of these things are easy, but a disease like COVID steps in and it's going to take advantage of the people who are otherwise unhealthy. And we are seeing that in real time. And we really do need to make a, a, a push towards improving your, your health uh, from a baseline. And, and I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm talking to anybody else. Um, now, real quick, Jess, you mentioned COPD. Tell, tell, tell our listeners what COPD is. So COPD stands for Chronic Obstruct- Obstructive Pulmonary Disorder. Um, and, I mean, it can ha- happen to anyone that is around someone, um, you know, like secondhand smoke. You can even get COPD from secondhand smoke. But it usually primarily happens in patients or people that smoke for an extensive time. Um, and, yeah, basically you live a, a life of shortness of breath and you die, hopefully, uh, not so terrible death yeah (laughs) hypoxic hypercapnic um, depending on the severity of it you could find yourself uh, on oxygen long term um yeah so i do want to pick your brain on something sure so one of the things i would tell uh, john and wendy and and mandy when, when she was here was that covid broke not just the business model but it broke the the medical model and it broke the nursing model right and in this, you know, when you look at the ICUs, you're like, okay, and well, an ICU is designed to have like 10 or 12 patients because it only represents a very small percentage mm-hmm. of people that get that sick. Now you have the complete opposite where you have ICUs that are having to build for a flux of, you know, 60 patients, 50 patients. So with you, the education model, like I look at it and I go, well, you know, it's one of the things that we all talk about is we watch all the med students and nursing students come in is uh do you think it broke the education model um i think that it did um i feel like it did in a sense break it um to a certain extent but i also feel like it this is better because we're teaching you know um new rts or or rt students and nursing students and you know, residents like, hey, this, I mean, I think sometimes we live in a world where it's like, oh, that can't happen because it's not, um, it can't happen. And then this was like a perfect example of you know, if it can happen, it's going to happen kind of deal. So I feel like this happened, it did kind of change the trajectory of education, but in a positive way, because now we can teach this to our new students, new healthcare professionals, uh, that are upcoming, like, Hey, this happened. And, um, this is how we found works, but if that doesn't work, then you can try this, you know? And we, like I said, are still learning too, but I, I've, I've seen it in a positive way, not so much a negative way. That's good. Yeah. One of the things that's also been interesting about the effect it's had on healthcare, whether it's healthcare education or uh, the practice of healthcare is the duration of this virus is unknown. And the comparison I would have is a natural disaster, a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake. It happens and then it's over. And as medical professionals, we say, okay, we can go in, we can, we can do this, 
we know what we need to do here. With COVID, we don't know when this is going to end. And so we've talked in the past about the importance of mental toughness. Well, now is more important than ever because we don't know how long we've got to sustain this. How long are we going to have to be worrying about patients coming in with COVID? And is it going to be an asymptomatic patient or is it going to be a patient who may die? And sometimes those patients look like they're the same and sometimes they're different. And you can guess and you can be wrong. And it's really hard. Unlike, say, a hurricane, which is incredibly devastating, but it has a defined end. This has been really challenging because we don't have a defined end. And, you know, we can speculate all day long, but no one really knows. And we're seeing that um, day in and day out. And yet we also have to have the mental toughness, not only as healthcare professionals, but just as a nation in general that says, okay, um, life is not risk-free. We have to get up in the morning. We have to go to work. Um, we have to do the best that we can to take care of ourselves, take care of our loved ones, um, and try to stay healthy. But uh, we can't let this disease, this illness, this virus beat us. And I mean that from a mental standpoint. Like we, um, we have lost people, and we will unfortunately probably continue to. And we'll have to bounce back, and we'll have to grow, and we'll have to learn. And the information that we're t telling you today... <laughs> might change next month because there may be new discoveries and hopefully there are hopefully there's medication that we discover but at this time uh we don't have a whole lot other than supportive care to offer and i know you're seeing that in the uh, in the icu uh and even on the floor and in, in the emergency department when you're coming down to to help us out tell us um what's been one of the strategies or how have you handled sort of the personal challenges of COVID and not just, not just to yourself as a person, but the fear you have of, well, I have a family because I know you have a family mm -hmm. and we all have that worry. It's like, I don't want to get my family sick. I don't want to get sick. Um, how, how have you, how have you coped with that? What, what have um, you done to? I, I mean, some days are definitely harder than others, but, um, like my dad says, you have to be accountable for your own safety. So I'm definitely accountable for my own safety. So as um, just kind of like throwing my own business out there, you guys know. But for all the listeners, uh, my boyfriend, who is actually an ER nurse, got COVID with like half of the ER at the same time at um, our place. So as a respiratory therapist, that was super hard because I have someone whom I love and is suffering right before my eyes and can't breathe. And I have, I don't have the tools necessary to, to help him, you know, other than medications that were prescribed to him. So being, um, on the opposite realm of it was pretty hard mentally, but at work, I'm, I wear my respirator. I wear an N95. I always wear a mask. Um, I wear the proper PPE at all times, uh, because like you said, I do have a seven year old at home. So I want to make sure that I keep her safe along with, you know, myself. Um, and I'm accountable for her safety as well. So, um, I, yeah. And then the people I work with too, uh, thankfully we have a good shift. So we're always, hey, maybe you should wear that instead of this, or don't forget to wear that, you know, so we always have each other's back, and someone to, like, check you when you're about to make a mistake, which I also think is pretty important in a team aspect, to be able to check 
each other when something's about to go wrong and then not get offended, you know, about it. But, um, like mentally, I feel like the only time when I am just, I feel absolute defeat is when I have to terminally exhibit, um, a patient that's really young, like younger than me or like the same age. I feel like that's the hardest, um, because you feel like, I mean, you go into healthcare to help people, obviously, and you are hopefully a realist and you know that you can't save everybody. Um, but there's just something about terminal exhibitions on young people and old people, but there's just something about them, especially during this like time of COVID where it's like, did this really have to happen? Like, did this really have to be the way this person checked out of here? Like, um, and all you can do is just hope and pray that they lived their life to the fullest and the legacy they leave behind was one that they could be proud of. But, um, there's just something about terminal exhibitions that get me, you know, I obviously don't cry while I'm in the room, but like, um, I guess cause my biggest fear is dying alone. It's sad to see other patients have to die alone, um, or like have to have the phone on speaker so that way, you know, at least the families can be there telling their their loved one, hey, it's okay, you can go. Um, there's just something about that, that if you're not mentally tough, it could take a, and even if you are, actually, I redact that, even if you are mentally tough, it, it's hard on anybody. I mean, we're human. And I feel like if we lie to ourselves and say, oh, that's not hard at all. It's just another patient. Why are we in healthcare then? I feel a lot of times people take the human out of healthcare, and that's why um, healthcare nationwide is kind of uh, suffering. We need to actually care about the work we do and about the people that we choose to serve because whatever hospital you end up post graduation, or even, you know, wherever you end up, you are where you're supposed to be. I'm a firm believer in that, but you are where you're supposed to be in whatever moment. I'm supposed to be here right now talking with you guys, sharing my story to these listeners. Um, and whoever's listening is supposed to be listening. So I, I just definitely am a firm believer in that we all are where we're supposed to be at a certain moment in time. But um, it's just hard sometimes. Like as a human, it's hard to like see that. Um, but you gotta have to push through it, you know? And I feel very fortunate that I surround myself with like-minded people that I can vent to and they don't judge me either. Um, if I'm like, hey, Wendy, that really sucked and I'm going to cry for like two seconds and just give me a hug, I know I could do that, you know, because um, I feel like a lot of the people I work with, I'm closer to them than I am with my family sometimes, my extended family. So uh, it's nice to have like that family feel and be able to lean on each other when times get tough. But I definitely am not one type of person, the type of person to hold it on all in because I, I've seen what happens when you do just hold it in. So I'm the type of person like, let me just let it out. And if we need to discuss it, let's discuss it. But then I want to move on. I don't want to feel that same way again. Now, Jess mentioned terminal extubation. For those of you who may not know what that is, 
Terminal extubation, extubation is when we remove the breathing tube on a patient who is not able to breathe for himself or herself. And that is usually a decision that is made by the patient's loved ones or whoever the decision maker is for that patient, uh, stating that uh, we're going to let this patient pass and not put this patient through suffering anymore. Um, an endotracheal tube is uncomfortable, uh, painful uh, to have uh, in your trachea, and it is um, great when you know you're going to be able to take the patient off of that and they're going to be able to start breathing on their own, but when you realize that that's not going to happen, the decision has to be made to pull that tracheal tube so that you can allow the patient to pass in peace. And that is a really challenging aspect of our work because like Jess said, we all went into healthcare wanting to help people, wanting to save people, wanting to uh, change things. And I tell you, my best mentors all told me that you can do everything right and patients will still die. And although they spoke the truth, none of it meant anything until I witnessed it firsthand. Because you can hear it all day, but until you live it and go through the mental and emotional challenges of realizing I did everything right. I mean, and you double check yourself and you go back and you, you talk to colleagues and you, you're confident and yet the patient still dies. And we live with that. We use that to fuel us to learn more and grow more and get better, but it still sticks with us. It's still hard, especially like Jess said, when it's a patient who's your age or younger. It makes it certain, certainly challenging. And the, the mental toughness, doesn't matter how mentally tough you are. I think it's important to be mentally tough, but yeah, if you're human, you're going to feel that and it makes it, it makes it challenging. One of the things you alluded to earlier, though, was being able to approach uh, physicians or uh, nurse practitioners with recommendations and the um, how beneficial it was when you felt like you could work as a team. I want to talk to you a little bit about that, uh, get you to tell us some experiences when you feel like the team was really in sync and you could go to the provider and the clinician and say, here's what I think. And you could work as a team and maybe some situation where things didn't go so smoothly um, and, and just how different those scenarios were. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll start off with the bad first. Okay. Um, the worst codes that I've been a part of have usually entailed a high volume level um, where everyone is so hyped or psyched out about the injury or the presentation of the patient where it's like everyone, um, the adrenaline makes your voice get higher and everyone's just shouting at each other and there's no clear direction. Um, and when someone is able to take charge and kind of redirect the energy, I feel that has that can change the whole set mode, the whole setting, I'm sorry, of the, um, of the code. 
because um, I can't be yelling. Craig can't be yelling at me saying, hey, I need you to get that ABG. And then I can't be yelling at him saying, don't you want to get this patient intubated first? Or, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense for us like to- You have two hands. <laughs> oh. <laughs> or you have Ruben in the background going, don't miss the central line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually like brings me to like another horror, not horror story, but like yesterday I straight up had a physician slap my hand. Oh, that's yeah, okay. Because um, he had asked me to hold Craig pressure on a, a patient and I was doing that, but no one was there to administer meds. And the patient was gag. I was gagging the patient. So I let go and he slapped my hand and said, no, hold pressure. Like, um you need to and i was like oh no and so after i had to be like please don't do that again because i'm really i was really nice about it this time please don't do that again and i mean we're cool now but you're much nicer than i would have been yeah it is a high stress situation and but, yeah. everybody like I... reacts especially to different scenarios very differently but that's part of our job is to remain calm, calm right cool, and be able to harness that energy and make it work in a way that betters the patient and hitting your staff members is never okay yeah yes. like i tell my yeah like like, like i tell my four-year-old use your words yeah, yeah exactly. use your words yeah, exactly like, we're, we're adults here come on use your words yes you need no. me to put my hand back okay use your words yes so no that, that i mean i've found and i feel like as respiratory therapists um it's kind of really cool like I really enjoy my job because I get to be there um so like I like I said before I, I do nick you as well so I get to be there on patients like happiest day of their life because babies are being born or I get to be there on somebody's really crappy you know situation where they're losing a family member and I'm the one that's having to assist them into death almost but um so you get to see a lot and I feel really happy with my career choices um and that's why I enjoy working where I work because I'm able to experience um several different scenarios and situations but yeah I I really don't think that we're being productive when we yell at each other in a high stress situation or there's no clear direction um because then everyone just ends up walking out of there pissed off because, okay, there's 10 things that could have been better because we were just hadn't, we weren't directed correctly, you know? Well, and that's one of the things that we aim to uh, improve through our company is communication tactics between healthcare professionals, whether you're a surgeon or whether you're a, um, a tech, yeah. it doesn't matter. Like you're still part of a team and the surgeon may need to be a leader, but a leader's got to take charge, take control. A leader's got to direct and a leader can't be yelling and discombobulated. A leader's got to say, listen, here's what I need you to do. And I need you to give me feedback. Mm -hmm. And if what I'm telling you to do doesn't make sense, I need you to tell me that and explain to me what your thought process is. And then we can redirect and say, oh, okay. Or I can tell you, no, I see what you're saying, but here's why I need you to do such and such, as opposed to yelling and screaming it's just dysfunctional and right. it's not helpful. Now, switch gears a little bit. Talk to us about when the communication has gone well. And um, when you, like, at times when you've been like, wow, we nailed as a team. I really felt like I was a, a, a valued member. Right. Yeah. No. So that's like 
the majority of my experiences. Like I have few negative experiences, but mostly I, I've had very positive um, experiences in my career. And I think it's because I've worked at this same place for so long that I've kind of established my credibility with physicians. And they're like, we don't trust you. We don't know what you're doing. You're kind of dangerous. And there are people out there that it's like, hey, that person's kind of dangerous. Um, if my family member was in here, I don't think I would like them to be taking care of them. So I try to, um, I've tried and continue to try every single day to build up my credibility and um, have a good physician-clinician relationship. Um, so especially when I'm in the ER, I feel like I can come up to any one of you guys and say, hey, this is how this patient is presenting right now. Um, can we, have you tried this test or this test? Um, and you guys are always open to communicate with me. And I think that's important for just side note for new, any kind of healthcare professional to have um, not for like you guys as um, pre uh, physicians to be like approachable because if someone's scared, they're not going to want to come and ask your recommendation or if you're if they're intimidated by you that you're breaking the communication chain where we could be progressive in, in getting this patient better, faster. We're kind of stalling out because we're afraid to approach you. Um, I know that I could go to any one of you guys and say, hey, you ordered this arterial blood gas um and this is what it looks like right now do you want to wait it out what intervention do you want to take and i know that any one of you guys would be open to my suggestions because um i've established some sort of credibility with you but communication is super important especially in the er icu setting because i want to be able to have a good relationship with you so that way if I'm ever in a jam it's like I'm really sorry but can you help bail me out you know um or not so much bail me out but can you help me because I don't want this patient to die right now so yeah communication is super important it really is yeah I, I agree I uh recently gave a little class and I, and I talked about you know leadership and one of the things that that I harp on personally is Everybody, especially when you're in a clinical setting, and probably even in a business setting, everybody should be considered a leader, right? So, if you know if John, Wendy, or myself, or even you are getting you know intel from a tech, or you know even if the housekeeper comes up to you and says, "Hey, by the way, this patient, you know, is gasping for air or whatever," it shouldn't be ignored, right? right? She's yeah. giving you hard intel at that mm -hmm. moment. She's taking a leadership role on behalf of that patient, mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing. So you know as it pushes forward, you know, I wouldn't sit there and be like, oh, you know, it's just a housekeeper or whatever. It's like, hey, you know what? I probably should get up and go look at this patient. And is, you know, one of the things that all of us talk about is actually get up and go look at your patient. The biggest thing that I've seen that COVID has done is it's made people scared to go see other patients. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get up and go see them. I'm like, okay they're either good or they're not good. Mm -hmm. And and then you just kind of like, you know, make adjustments as needed. I feel like anyone that works in the hospital setting, though, is a patient advocate because like you said, like a housekeeper or um, 
a cafeteria lady like yeah they how many to deliver times... a tray and they're like right hey. yeah like anytime someone goes and delivers a tray or you have a family member how many times have we heard you know that code like to the cafeteria and it's like a patient's family member and a lot of times it's because these cafeteria ladies are able to recognize they don't know what exactly is going on but they're able to recognize this isn't normal and I need to get help. So I feel like you kind of have, I mean, you have to be a patient advocate if you're going to be working in a hospital setting, especially. You don't have to be, have some sort of credential behind your name. And I'll also add this too. If you're a new physician, if you're a new nurse practitioner or a new physician assistant and you come in and aren't willing to acknowledge that you don't know everything, um, that, that, that's not appropriate or healthy and nor should you be ashamed. You're not going to know it all. Yes. You need to continue to study. You need to continue to learn. But if you need to ask a question to help a patient, ask the question, don't be ashamed. And I honestly think that if you're working with a team worth a damn, they're going to realize, Hey, this person recognizes that he or she need some help and they have the intestinal fortitude to do that and you're going to get a lot of respect just for doing that but if you act cocky and make a decision because you think you're right and you're wrong you're going to be digging out of that hole for a long time and i i, I really do think that so you know learn to work on the team be the leader step up but part of being a leader is sometimes being a follower and knowing when you need to follow and when you need to listen to the people on the front line, if that's not you, and when you need to step up and lead and take control of that room and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We got this. Does that mean that everything's going to go right? No, but you're going to learn from it. You're going to get better as long as you take that attitude into it and you leave your ego at the door because mm -hmm. I don't have any numbers to back this up. But I swear, I feel like arrogance kills as many people as ignorance. I think Craig actually said it in the first podcast, like about humbling yourself. Yeah. And I think when you walk in the door and you swipe your badge to clock in, like you should probably remind yourself to be humble because right when you start to get comfortable in a situation and it's like, Oh, I got this. Like I, I've been through it all. You know, I've been through the ringer and then like, COVID a, hits. yeah, a <laughs> wrench gets thrown in and then it's like, okay, I'm not so I, I need to be humble because yeah. I, I don't know it all. So yeah. Well, patients just don't read the textbooks either. They present in really unique and odd situations and you're like, I've never seen this happen like this. What is this? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, a really good example of that is when I came to our facility, I came with a really strong medical foundation but not a great invasive procedure foundation and uh, I also had some of the least amount of like practicing and though I'd been practicing for a long time compared to a lot of other APPs and everything I still when you look at Craig or some of our other coworkers, they've been practicing for decades so I had to come in and be like you're old <laughs> you are, you are old. old. Uh, wow, bro. Um, no, no, respect, respect, respect. Um, but I also could be like, okay, so he, I really wanted to learn these procedures. This was one of my main driving forces to picking this facility, especially. And so I 
said, hey, Craig, if you have something, show me, teach me, let me do it. And he does. He comes and gets me. Or I've done the same thing with John. Like, hey, let me do, you know, this intubation. Let me do this. And Jess was actually in one of my worst intubations and actually um, made was very calm and like very nice about it. I had a horrific G, upper GI bleed and, um, you know, it was kind of one of those sink or swim moments and there's right. just blood everywhere and I'm like nervous and shaking and whatever. And, um, cause you want to do what's best for your patient. You want this to go smoothly and you want it to feel right, but this is hard cause you have blood coming from their mouth and trying to put a tube down their throat at the same time and trying to find a really small hole Sm really small <laughs> hole and Jess just kind of leaned over and was like it's okay their oxygen is still 100% you got this and I'm like okay hand me a bougie though <laughs> while you're there being uh, supportive hand me a bougie hand me a bougie because I can't see anything and so I mean it just it's um it's not a bad thing to say you don't know everything and you want to learn because I everybody's in goal especially when you go into healthcare is that you want to help the patients and you want to be better. And so, um, I know people, I think people are arrogant only because they're afraid of what they don't know and they're afraid to admit and they want to help people so badly. Um, but it's a better outcome for you and for the patient to just say, yeah, I don't know how to do that. Somebody come show me. So it really is. And it really garners the respect of your team. If you can say, Hey, listen, I uh I probably should know this. Y'all still respect but, me? <laughs> oh hell yeah. <laughs> and and you can just say, listen, I, I know I should know this, um, and I'm gonna look it up, but can can you help me right now? Because the people on your team are gonna realize, hey, this person cares more about what's right for the patient than making themselves look good. Mm -hmm. And that goes a long way. Um mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's really uh important. You know, and, and to, to Wendy's point in terms of doing the procedures, it's, you know, the, the human body is, uh, it's not, it's unique. You know, everybody's got a little bit of a different anatomy and a little bit different airway and a little bit different vein structure, just enough to make it really hard. And the important thing as you're getting started, if you're out there, is that you don't give up. If you fail, Try again. Learn from your failure. What did you do wrong? What do you need to do differently next time? Because don't do the same thing. Because if you do the same thing over and over, it is insanity, according to Einstein. And if you're changing stuff up, okay, good. Seek out assistance, but don't give up. Just don't give up. I remember reading one of uh, Atul Gawande's books. And I don't remember which one it was. But he talks about trying to learn how to do a central line as an intern. And he is... So he is in his, I guess, a general surgery internship program. And a central line is, is in essence, a big IV. It's an IV, a large IV placed in one of the major vessels of the human body that allows us to administer multiple medications at the same time. And he talks about sticking this big needle in the, the patient trying to get access and sticking the patient and sticking the patient over and over and missing and missing and missing and his senior surgery resident coming in and just getting him on the first time and he he comments something to the effect of how defeated he felt and the resident thankfully had the foresight to say just keep practicing you'll get it and he said it took him months but eventually he got it and as soon as he did he realized oh 
light bulb, that's what I need to do. Yeah. And that's just it. You got to keep practicing and you're going to miss. And honestly, even after you've been doing it a long time, you're, you're still, still going to miss. miss. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing is that you step back and say, okay, what am I going to do now to fix the problem? What, what's my, what's my next step? Whether it's a rescue device like a bougie or a video, what is your next step to rescue? But ultimately it's about checking your ego, leave it at the door. Uh, because it isn't helping anybody. It isn't helping you. It isn't helping patients. It's not helping your team. Um, and, and it is, and it's not helping communication. Um, especially when you've got other, uh, professionals in the building like Jess who have been managing ventilators as a respiratory therapist for the better part of six years and has seen things that I haven't seen. And she has a story that she can tell that says, Hey, look, I don't know if this is applicable, but it did work in this other patient. Should we try it? Hey, I like that. Let's talk through this. Or I can tell her, look, I've seen this in the different patient. We can try this. But the lines of communication have to stay open for it to benefit both the relationship between the two professionals and the patient. And I think that's really what we want to do is, is improve the relationships between the healthcare professionals because that improves the outcomes for the patients. I really do believe that. Anybody else have any questions for Jess? I think so. I think we kind of. Do you ever have a like a really good oh shit moment? <laughs> like where I didn't know something. Yeah, you're just like oh fuck, like I'm so like screwed. Yeah, I'm what do I do right now? Step. Mm. <laughs> That's like all the time. I mean, <laughs> like, oh shit. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. I have one. Um. One time. Oh, I have two actually. The one, okay, I was precepting a, a new RT and at our facility, our psych hold room is six, right? One of them. And we walked in for something else being called and there's a lady standing at the door <laughs> banging on it and she look, makes eye contact with the other therapist and says, help me, I'm locked in. Can you unlock the door? And she goes in, opens the door and lets the psych patient go out and it's running down the hall. And that was, uh, oh shit, I should have told her, don't answer that door. <laughs> don't answer that door. But um, yeah, usually I, when I'm That's like, fucking hilarious. yeah, it was... I, <laughs> Yeah, some there was people there that had to tackle How the patient. How does the patient elope from the secluded room? Yeah, um, the respiratory therapist yeah, let her out. But yeah, I mean, you, I've um, there was a time when there was uh, another instructor in our facility with some students, and the patient was uh, withdrawing. Uh, was withdrawing and um was like thrashing and stuff and they she was on the brink of self-extubation and this instructor went and pulled the tube without um telling anybody so that was kind of scary because um we didn't know i mean we had to call a code so that way we could get a physician come in um and intubate the the patient immediately but that was an oh shit moment for me because um that was the first time this instructor had to come through while I was working the unit and I was terrified that she was gonna well she did overstep her boundaries and um that I didn't want it to fall back on me so that's why I'm always like super careful when I'm precepting new people because I mean I don't want them to put their license in jeopardy or myself either but 
that's probably like one of the bigger ones because uh, my patient got exhibited by not me and by someone who doesn't work for the facility. So, well, yeah. Jess, yeah, Jess, thank you so much for coming out and being on our podcast. Thank we, you for uh, having me. We appreciate it. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do as a respiratory mm -hmm. therapist and the help that you give your patients. Um, and us. And us. Yes. yes. And us. Go team. And if you're interested in learning more about training and consulting services offered by Ops Medical Group uh, and how our leadership and teamwork platforms can be of service to your hospital, your medical teams, or your business, you can contact us through our website, opsmedgroup.com, which is O-P-S-M-E-D-G-R-P.com. And please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Lastly, although we are medical professionals, we are not your personal medical professional. <laughs> this podcast is in no way to serve as a diagnostic information or advice, nor is it to replace any personal Medicare you might, medical care you might need. If you're worried that you may need medical care, please see your private physician or closest emergency department. If you think you need emergency care, please dial 911. Thanks. Bye.